this is Marcy Trent Long. Welcome to Sustainable Asia. Three Billion is a four-part podcast series about the seafood trade in Hong Kong, China, and Asia. It's made in collaboration with China Dialogue and sponsored by Swire Group Charitable Trust. Hong Kong is really important and what Hong Kong does matters and what how we regulate and how we enforce our regulation and what we do in the courts really matters. And I don't think that is percolated to the government here in that sense. So, for example, traffickers in other countries getting really heavy offences for possession of certain species, um, going to prison for many, many years is one thing. But when you get to Hong Kong and it's a much lesser sentence, what does that say? Welcome back for the last episode of Three Billion. In the last few episodes, we revealed why so many seafood products are highly valued in China and Asia. We also took a look at what consumer campaigns and international conventions have been tried before. Now it's time to look at what we can do differently. And in this episode, some of our previous guests come back, like Sophie LeClue of ADM Capital Foundation, who you just heard. But I'll also talk with Bonnie Tang, a Greenpeace campaigner concerned with the most expensive of the four treasures of Chinese cuisine, the fish ma, and with Joyce Wu. I'm Joyce Wu. I used to work for traffic for 20 years. It's a wildlife conservation organization. I wanted to talk to Joyce because as a former member of Traffic, a wildlife trade monitoring network, she knows all the routes and tricks these smugglers use to move their illegal goods through Asia's porous borders. When we're talking about smuggling, we have to think about it's a trade. Uh, so the uh, smugglers will also use the very well-organized, convenient uh, commercial transportation and logistic systems. Regardless, uh, it's for air cargo, sea freight parcel, or by personal transportation. Although uh, the smugglers may, may also use their own transportation, like airplanes or uh, boats, the well-developed commercial service is more convenient for them. A lot of endangered marine species are stowed away in large containers on board cargo ships by reputable shipping companies. And as Sophie told me, we can't really blame these shipping companies either, because current requirements for container labeling are incredibly vague. So currently, the manifest, when something comes in Hong Kong, it's very vaguely manifested. So you could have a manifest that says dry seafood. It doesn't have to say it's containing shark. So it's difficult. I mean, if you're an airline and you've banned carrying shark fin and people are putting stuff on your plane, it says dry seafood, how do you know that's shark fin? So, I mean, it's, I mean, it's very difficult. So it's easy to trick the commercial shipping companies. But even when a container is sampled and shark fin is found, then what? Not all sharks are listed on CITES. So one of the main problems that arises when a container full of shark fins is found is whether the fins are from endangered shark species. Because only shark fins listed on CITES can be prosecuted as illegal marine trade. 
Yvonne Sadovi of the University of Hong Kong and Joyce Wu are working on a solution. With shark fin, for example, it's very difficult to distinguish, unless you're an expert, between different species of shark that have produced the fin. And so having labs, molecular labs, which can do DNA analyses or taxonomic experts, people who are experts in identification of various kinds, having those in Hong Kong as a coordinated body would be very, very valuable. And we already have that in the School of Biological Sciences that's beginning to grow. And we already work to some extent with the Agriculture and Fishery Department in Hong Kong when they need assistance in identifying different kinds of animals, parts of animals. We work with government and with the forensic labs in China. So they will be able to help the forensic uh, DNA test. Whenever the custom find any suspicious uh, sharp things, they will be able to send that specimens to the forensic lab for test. And the evidence, the result, will be able to support the judiciary authorities later on. But Sophie raises another good point. Is that really practical on such a large scale? When they, you see... Um, contain a load of shark fin. One sack contains tens of thousands of fins. So how many do you have to identify before you retain that seizure and you prosecute it? And also the, what we believe is the juveniles of the, um, the CITES listed species, not all of them can be identified visually. So you'd have to do DNA analysis. So if you seized a whole load of containers of small fins, you wouldn't be able to identify without doing DNA analysis. And as far as I believe, the customs would have to have reason to suspect that they were CITES spins before they would do any DNA analysis because they have to hold up the um, container and they don't want to do that. So there are, there are some real problems in implementing CITES for species like sharks, particularly when it's fins. And I think that's why you don't see so many seizures. In other cases, even when a certain product is confirmed to be CITES listed, a different problem becomes evident, as I learned from Bonnie Tang of Greenpeace. Hello, I'm Bonnie. Bonnie studied abroad in Mexico, so she was very glad to get back there on her first marine campaign with Greenpeace to document the illegal fishing of the totoaba. The totoaba is a fish in the family of croakers. These fish have unusually large swim bladders, or fish maws, which is one of those four treasures we spoke about in episode one, and exactly what the poachers are after. So they cut this part and then they dry them out into uh, uh, yellow pieces yeah, of dried seafood. And in Chinese tradition, they believe that if you use the fish maw to cook the soup and then to, to, to drink, it is really like good for health. So it is a really like kind of a, a popular dried seafood, especially in, in Hong Kong and also in southern China. Chinese fishermen used to catch a local fish called Chinese bahaba for their fish maw. The dish became so popular that the bahaba was nicknamed the money fish. But then because of the, the overconsumption and also the overcash, the Chinese bahaba go extinction. So when the bahaba became endangered, the valuable trade in fish maw found another victim. They just tell this story to their customers that, okay, you know, we now have Mangi fish more, very, very similar to the one you bought before. <laughs> and now the Totoaba is going the same way as the Bahaba, with the added tragedy that Totoaba poachers happen to fish in the same Mexican waters as the highly endangered vaquita, 
a tiny species of porpoise that gets caught in the Totoaba fish nets and dies. According to the latest findings, there are only about 10 vaquita left in the world. Meanwhile, no one in China was even aware that the trade in fish ma could have such disastrous consequences. We conducted the first one investigation in um, 2015. At that time, actually no one knows fish ma is an endangered species because it is so common. It's like um, everyone in, in Hong Kong, they buy the fish more and then they, they cook soup, but they don't know a specific fish more called Tutaba is a critically endangered species. So back in 2015, Bonnie and her colleagues tried something out. They headed to Shangwan, where Stan and I also were at the beginning of this series. Shockingly, about one in 10 retailers had the Totoaba on display and ready to sell at an astronomical price. It is more around like um, 100,000 Hong Kong dollars, yeah. But when the team shared their investigation with the local authorities... Two dry seafood stores were slapped with fines in total around like uh, 110,000 Hong Kong dollars. 100,000 Hong Kong dollars? That's almost 13,000 US dollars. That's about the same price they fetch for a single fish maw. Uh, yes, it's really like little. We did um, another round of investigation because we want to see is that still possible to find the Totaba fish maw in the, in the dry seafood market. And then we found out that actually it is still be possible to buy the Totaba fish maw. Only now you have to pay upfront before the retailers will actually show you the product. Given the low penalties for selling illegal totoaba, Bonnie sees the cycle of selling illegal luxury seafood products in Hong Kong never ending. You can also predict that even if the totoaba go extension, they can just easily to fly another type of, of marine life and then they would package it and sell it again. Yeah, just like the Chinese Bahaba. Yeah. A short break to thank our sponsor, Swire Group Charitable Trust creating positive change in education, marine, and arts through supporting registered nonprofit organizations, primarily in Hong Kong and mainland China. In the last episode, we learned how hard it is to have marine species listed on CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. After the uphill battle faced by advocates like Yvonne, Gary, and Stan, to raise awareness on the fate of marine species, a battle that entails getting the species protected by a CITES committee that might have conflicts of interest, or training customs officials to recognize the species in live or dried form, or even risking their lives to go undercover to expose illegal activities. After all that, the poachers and smugglers pay a measly fine and go on with their business. Does the punishment fit the crime on what we've seen? I would say not. For example, and I have to use rhino as an example, in Zimbabwe, if you're caught with rhino, that's nine years in prison. Maximum we've seen in Hong Kong is nine months. Why is the punishment so soft? Who is responsible for prosecuting these smugglers? The two enforcement agencies that then prosecute are either Customs or Agriculture Fisheries Conservation Department. From what we've seen, most of the prosecutions are undertaken by the Agriculture, Fisheries and Conservation Department. Again, it's the same problem here in Hong Kong as in most of the rest of the world. The responsibility for prosecuting marine wildlife trade falls under the same department that regulates agriculture and fisheries. 
because fish has always been considered food, not wildlife. We don't think it's particularly a good thing because if you want, if you're if you're prosecuting, um, for example, a container load of uh, shark fin, um, you need a lot of investigation to determine who's behind that. So that needs a lot of investigation work. ASCD are not trained investigators. They're not actually trained prosecutors. They're an environmental department. Customs have all of the powers to do a lot of investigations. However, our, our sense is that wildlife is not a priority for them. And we don't believe that some of the seizures are investigated to the fullest extent. Yvonne agrees. One of the big challenges we have is that we aren't considering wildlife, including seafood trade, as serious crime. And as a result of that, we just simply don't have the investigative capacity or the enforcement capacity to be able to deal with this massive trade. And so it's sort of out of control. The government's um, view here is that wildlife crime is not organised and serious crime. And they have said to us, the Customs Department, that there is little evidence on organised and serious crime. So Sophie and her colleagues set out to prove that wildlife smuggling is absolutely organised crime. What we did was we reviewed 379 seizures over five years and we reviewed another 98 from 2018 already. And the idea behind that was to really show that this is serious crime, that it's organised because of the way it's coming in. And it has, to, it, has, it has to take advantage of a sophisticated network to come from some part of Africa through maybe a second country into Hong Kong and out either to maybe to Malaysia, maybe to Vietnam, maybe into China. That has to be facilitated by an organised network. They also found that many of these groups smuggling wildlife are the exact same criminal groups that traffic drugs and weapons. Armed with that knowledge, Sophie and Yvonne now campaigned to have the offense of wildlife crime prosecuted as organized and serious crime. So it's not just down to the agriculture and fisheries departments to tackle these complex systems of smuggling. By giving the mandate to the police, we think there would be a better chance of uh, a much more coordinated approach to wildlife crime globally. And I think it's not, this isn't just Hong Kong. I think that's the view generally, that there needs to be much more coordination with police forces across countries um, to bring down these networks because they, they're operating um, off, across continents. Already, there are calls within Interpol to treat wildlife crime with the same gravity as other forms of trafficking. At an Interpol meeting late last year, participating countries, including China, agreed greater cooperation was necessary. Is CITES enough? If we start viewing the illegal marine trade as organized and serious crime, is CITES the best instrument for our policemen to crack down on smuggler networks? Sophie told me about the real-world limitations to a convention that only regulates the trade of endangered species. If you're protecting something in your own country, but it gets exported illegally, or someone's harvesting illegally and exporting it illegally, once it gets to Hong Kong, it's legally allowed in because it's not on CITES. For example, um, India, I believe, has banned a lot of the most shark fin exports. Now, we still see shark fin exports, shark fin being imported into Hong Kong legally. Forget about the 12 species on CITES. For the remaining species, technically speaking, shouldn't be coming in from India, but they are. And because it's not, it's not on CITES, the Hong Kong government isn't really going to stop that because it's not 
our law. I was really surprised to learn that the United States actually has a law in place since 1900 that prevents that from happening. So in the United States, you have the Lacey Act, and the Lacey Act takes into account whether something is illegally sourced in the country of origin. It's unlikely that Hong Kong will jeopardize its status as a hassle-free port with intrusive regulation like the Lacey Act. But as China finds a new position as global leader in forward-thinking environmental policy, this could be a practical step towards better wildlife preservation. But even a Lacey Act only covers the actual trade between countries. On the open seas outside of territorial waters, Gary Stokes of Oceans Asia sees another massive gap in CITES as a tool for conservation. There's a big fleet at the moment, 245 fishing vessels just off Galapagos. And they're just emptying, they're just vacuuming out the high seas, but it's the high seas, so it's totally legal. And that's the issue where everybody's flapping about, but it's in high seas, you can't do anything about it. And then they bring that back to port. They're just, they're just fishing, that's what they're doing. But they're doing it on an industrial size. You know, the scale of it is just, it's out of this world. Because it's classed as introduction from the sea. So there's no, it's not cross, crossing an international boundary. It was caught on the high seas and introduced to a port in China. CITES is the Convention of International Trade of Endangered Species. It's the trade of endangered species internationally. So if you take it from one jurisdiction to another jurisdiction, that's when you need a permit to go across the border. If you're taking it from the high seas and bringing it into a port, it doesn't cross the border. A trade convention is really only good at protecting marine wildlife if the species are traded. We need to do better than that. And there's hope. Conservationists around the world are well aware of the limitations of CITES and are trying to go beyond trade conventions. The question's been raised recently by the ex-CITES Secretary General, John Scanlon, whether or not we should have a wildlife crime convention as opposed to the Convention of International Trade and Endangered Species. And maybe such a convention could address some of the, the, the gaps that are in CITES which are not protecting species because it's not designed to do so in the same, same manner. Um, and that's, that's a huge thing to do. But maybe it's time to start thinking about that and discussing that. Reading the conclusions of the UN Biodiversity Report, it's once again clear that we're leaving our oceans in a sorry state. Sir Robert Watson the chair of the assessment group, told National Geographic, my biggest personal concern is the state of the oceans. We're really screwing up the oceans in a big way. I think we are seeing some changes in society. Not fast enough, though. I really do fear for the next 10, 15 years. I just, yeah, no, I just think we need a massive global shift consciousness shift towards how we're using our natural resources and if that doesn't happen in the next five years i think we are in serious serious trouble wildlife globally is under massive stress trade is part of that so we, we have a role to play in hong kong a really big role um, and we're disproportionate actually it's you know we're seven million in this city yet we could make a massive difference the hong kong government could be training 
other countries in the region. The police force in Hong Kong has a good reputation, customs have a good reputation. When, you know, if they took this very seriously, they could make a big difference. The free port of Hong Kong acts as an enabler for an unsustainable trade that's driving down populations of the most amazing marine animals. But as my wonderful guests have said, better cooperation across borders can help us bring an end to this. Because seafood smuggling is not the problem of a single country. We're all killing the sharks, as Gary said so well. With a thriving seafood trade that's been around for centuries, Hong Kong and China can be at the forefront of progress. Chinese, we have been seen as part of the problem. But now you can see Hong Kong, I think we are come to the moment, it's like we are part of the problem, but we can be part of the solution. We can think twice about the source of fish we all love to consume. The tools are out there to make a conscious choice whether we order food or do our groceries. You can find sustainable seafood guides online. I've been using them. And simply by being aware, I can make an impact on the people around me, the restaurants in my street, the retailers in my area, and the fishermen who know that a tradition that isn't sustainable won't be a tradition for long. Three Billion is produced by me, Marcy Trent Long, in collaboration with China Dialogue. The series is written and edited by Sam Columby and mixed by Chris Wood. Thanks to our sponsor, Swire Group Charitable Trust. Additional thanks to Zhang Chun and Ma Tianjie at China Dialogue Beijing, Josie Chan for translation, and our voiceover, Crystal Wu. Interviews were recorded at the Journalism and Media School of the University of Hong Kong. The intro and outro music is made from repurposed and recovered waste items by Alexander Mogesen. Learn more about his music at kalelover.net. Thank you.